0: Welcome to Modern Homemakers, the podcast that you've been waiting for. You know that Donna's been speaking on the subject of staying. Staying in all its aspects. She's written 11 books, as you probably know. They're available on the website, but this might be another book. Staying in a Leaving Culture. Today we're talking about staying together till death do us part. Remember those words? Here's Donna. I remember
1: those words. I remember standing in front of you and saying those words. Well, we have been talking about staying. Um, I think when I say staying, I think sometimes staying, I, I realize it'd be easier to leave because staying, I have to overcome something. There are obstacles. And I frankly know that oftentimes it's easier to give up. It's easier to give up. George Fox, who is an old gentleman who wrote about waiting, and he said there is a stayedness, S-T-A-Y-E-D, stayedness, about waiting, waiting for God. And, of course, the Scripture is full of places where he calls us to be still and to wait. And in John, the book of John, in the great priestly chapters, we hear... Jesus talking about abiding, abiding in the vine, abiding, staying, staying with Christ. And the word stay, another word for it is to abide, to stay in the same place. We hear people talk about staying in shape. Well, I'm talking during these Weeks, seven or eight weeks more, about staying in various aspects of our life. And the last time we were together, I introduced to you what I thought were the nine essential concepts of marriage. We've talked about these throughout the years. And last time we were together, I went through the first four institution, forgiveness and reconciliation, respect, acceptance, and trust staying in a marriage. And today I'm going to finish these nine um, essential concepts by talking about the last five. Headship and submission. Kind of a nice break I did there because this is always such a hot button. And I think it's a hot button because like all things, there have been seasons in this world when those words were translated inappropriately, not correctly, and they put bondage on a relationship instead of freedom. And then following headship and submission, we'll talk about intimacy, mystery, grace upon grace, and lastly, kindness. So as we begin today, I do want to read what is a very often used, and if you grew up in the church, if you're a church attender or a Bible reader or a Bible studier, you could probably tell me where I'm starting. Ephesians, what chapter? Five. But most often, we start with Ephesians 5, verse 22. And for me, the life-changing, life-giving change happened when I started with 21, because it starts in this way. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I paused. I, I can still remember where I was, and I was reading it as if I'd always read it, and suddenly it, it didn't say to me what it had always said. Because it said to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is gathered together with headings and modern translations in the Christian household. It's not marriage, it's talking about the Christian household. And in the second, the next verse, the 22nd verse, he says, wives, be subject to. So we know that this is the area where wives and husbands are talked about. Actually, I think if you counted the words, letters, or syllables, there's more conversation to the husband than there is to the wife. But when I read that, be subject to one another, it fits very well with something that David and I learned about, through very close friends, about the notion of being in agreement, the notion about being in agreement. And I can remember Elizabeth Elliott saying, plan A is agreement, plan B is submission. So I'm going to read these verses to you uh, as slowly as I can without taking too much of our time. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you're in a room... With five men and five women who are not married to one another in any way, they are subject to one another. So it's not about men and women. It's about human beings being subject to one another. And if you're on that committee for five years looking for a new pastor or three months or on a board of elders, if your church has men and women in on its board, you are subject to one another by, vir- by virtue of what God calls us to be. Now we take this and wrap it around the household. That means your children, your husband, your wife, and that's in the grace of God. We're subject to one another. Then he goes to wives. Be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, and the body for which is the savior. I must pause every few verses. When I read, just as Christ is the head of the house, I always have this sigh, and I think how many times I've said, thank you, Lord, that you didn't make me a man, because that responsibility, being subject to Christ in his relationship to me, is like the head of the church, like Christ is the head of the church just as the church is subject to Christ. So wives also ought to be subject to their husbands. Husbands, now that, that took three verses. Husbands, starting at verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of the water and the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or a wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. Every time I read that, literally every time I read that, I want to go to my husband and say, Oh, you poor baby, I'm sorry that assignment was given to you to help me try to be holy, to help me be available and to present myself to God as he was presented to the church without a spot or a wrinkle or anything of the kind, that I would not have a blemish. Now, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of watching over me. That's a lot of praying for me. That's a lot of caring for me. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes it and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of the body. I don't know about you, but I love to wrestle. And David and I have been wrestling since we met. Uh, but a little less of it now that we're a little older. But we're still up for the punch and the jab and the slam and the tickle. And we have places that we call in our body, you know, places you want to pick or poke. And they'll make you jump. And I know that there are certain places I'm not to poke at David. And there are certain places he's not to poke at me. And I think you get my drift there. But the, but the purpose of this is that David now is called to love me and present me like Christ was presented. Wow. And then he's to love me as much as he loves his own body. And then we go right to back to where we began. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That brings us right to the Genesis uh, chapter. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. It's it's a peck of words. It's deep concepts. It is not something we simply rush into. We shouldn't rush into marriage. We shouldn't rush through marriage. We should have these conversations. If you are a young woman, if you are an engaged woman, if you have a church uh, that that offers you a premarital course or class or premarital counseling with your pastor, do it, do whatever it takes. Do all the profiles and evaluation you can possibly take from personality profiles to spiritual gifting profiles. Learn who this person is. You're very different. Right now, he's the apple of your eye, but I assure you, he won't always be the apple of your eye. And knowing him and understanding him will be a great advantage. Submission to one another is how the passage starts in Peter and John, uh, Peter and Jesus in John chapter thirteen. And again, I'm flipping my pages here. takes a second. Uh, I know where the books are. John chapter 13, verse 14 through 17. I think this is very important uh, that we read these passages. And he says, uh, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, Servants are not greater than their masters, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. And verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So this servant relationship that we have one, with one another, in Luke chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, we see Jesus saying, the servant is the greatest one. He's not the one who is being served. Philippians 2, one of my favorite phrases in the scripture, regard others more importantly than yourself. He's not talking about husbands and wives. He's talking about human beings. I can remember teaching our little girl, the, the, whoever's going to the door, if, if they get there before you do, they go first. And then as she got older, you open the door for them. Regard others more importantly than yourself. And in Roman ten he says, outdo one another with brotherly affection. Uh, so this isn't one upsmanship. This is directly from the heart of Christ. Who do you love the most? The one who respects you and accepts you and favors you and you look forward to seeing that great aunt or uncle. Or grandmother who loves you and respects you and prefers you. When you walk into the room and you see that dear Aunt Dessa looking for my face. As I come into the room, she's looking for my face. I can still remember it. And she always had some kind word to say to me. So God believes that this is how the relationship should be. David is not smarter than me, David's not more godly than me. He's very different than me. The weight is on his head and his shoulders, not mine. The scripture very clearly puts the weight and the onerous on him. The wise woman, which which the Proverbs talked about, is the one who realizes that being in charge is a lot more work and a lot more responsibility. We've read those passages already in Ephesians 5. Yielding is a habit and one that makes you more in charge than being in charge. You choose, and that choice brings peace. Yes to Jesus and the biggest and most support and surrender he did on our behalf. Submit, yield, work allow others, including those in our country, our government, our elders in the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, people who are called to have a role in the relationship that we are called to respect and um, hold them in esteem. And as we talk often around here, this is not so much a taught it as it is a caught it your children will catch from you and your husband exactly what you do in respecting one another. Now six in this list of nine is is always a hot subject. Oh that's kind of funny. I the word is intimacy. I didn't I, I, I'm pretty funny when I'm not trying to be funny aren't I? I, sh- I won't laugh too hard or too long at that. but intimacy is a subject that all of us have questions about. Before we're married, we can't wait. After we're married, we wonder. Sometimes girls like it more than boys. Sometimes boys like it more than girls. Sometimes girls only like it so they have babies. And when they're done, that's that. But the word intimacy has a lot to do uh, with the relationship we have with one another. This is a careful subject, um, we we do a lesson. We used to do a lesson called um, the, the marriage bed. And I, there were always giggles and laughs about that because everybody knew where I was going. But I get a lump in my throat every time I see a mom and a dad hug each other. Even though I laugh and accuse them of acting totally uncool, it makes me feel secure because I watch how they're touching each other. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Pretty clear, isn't it? Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Now, you can't make it any clearer and in one verse, and he's talking about the body, the body as a whole, His references, of course, are directions concerning marriage, and he talks about the unmarried and the widows and what what the married is to give, the commandment, but the Lord that the wife should not separate from her husband. He goes on and talks about the marriage relationship and the divorce relationship and what happens. But this verse stands out as a very clear illustration that this is not something you use against your mate. It's not my body and you can't touch it. It's not your body and you can't touch it. Now, I I, I said earlier, David and I like to poke and wrestle and, and, and if he's really done with wrestling and I go for one more poke... Uh, I I do that sometimes. I say to him, "Here I come. Remember, your body is my body, and I get one more poking." Now that's in fun, but women, men, young women, remember that this is a part of the respect that you um, give your husband, and he gives you in mutuality. That you come together in the intimacy of marriage like nowhere else in the world, one for procreation and two for pleasure. The seventh element is mystery. It's hard to accept a mystery, isn't it? Uh, When we watch mystery shows or movies, you know, we want to get to the solution. We want to get to the solution. And marriage has an element of mystery, and it always will. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I think a mystery without a solution until the end is hard. But that's how the mysteries are written. They build up everything. They give all the reasons. They set the stage and the actors, and then the play begins, and we get to the end to find out who done it, okay? In Genesis 1, starting at verse 27, he says, We are created in his image, male and female. We're to be fruitful, multiply, subdue everything, rule, take charge of what I gave to you. God planted the garden. He put the man in the garden. He gave it to them, no mortgage, no upkeep, just as he made it. God told them they could have anything they wanted but one tree, one tree. And then he said it was not good for man to be alone, and he created for him a helper. All else is good, and as it was, and suitable for each other. Elizabeth used to say to me, God made a woman from the man, brought to the man, to be named by the man. And there was a purpose in that. He's called to leave his father and mother, Mothers, get ready. Your sons will leave. I didn't have a son. I only had a daughter. So I can always say to mothers, oh, you mothers and your sons. I married one of those sons. Did you marry one of those sons? They're just special and unique. And uh, used to be at our house, I would call David, whose name was David, and his mother called him David. And when we would get behind closed doors, I would say, "Davy, baby, that's how your mama treats you. Oh, that was, those were not happy words. But in chapter 2, God tells them, after you've left your father and your mother and you've done this, if you, if you do all of these things, everything will, will go on but if you eat of the tree, you will die. And then she says, you will surely die. Will I surely die? As best as I can figure this out with a lot of helpers from many scholars, man created in God's image should not be alone and was given a helper. And this should be human, not a God. They could not submit to being human. This is the core of our problem. They were unwilling to say, I am human, And you are God. We want to be gods. We want to be in charge. We want to be the one who gives the rules. We want to make up our own rules. They could not submit to being human. That, I believe, is the core of the whole trouble. God was there, He gave them everything, it was beautiful. We could not submit to being human we wanted to be god and isn't that what the serpent says you mean you too will and she says yes we have to recognize the fact that we need to be satisfied with how god has made us when our grandchildren were little i bought a book with songs in every genre of music and there was one song about a dinosaur And the song went something like, How do you feed a dinosaur? More, 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 more. The kids love that. More, 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 more. They said more, 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 more times than you could stand. But I never think of this passage of scripture while thinking that. That's that's what they said. God gave them everything, told them to name everything, gave them each other. God in created in his image. And what did they say? I want more. More, 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 more. So they did. They wanted more. They wanted to be God. And you know what? There are times in all of our lives when we want to be God. We want to be in charge. We want to be in charge. And we can't be in charge of everything. And certainly in the marriage relationship. The less that we desire to be a God, the less that we desire to be in charge, the more that we are willing to say, What do you think? What shall we do? Can we get to agreement and make decisions together? The more that relationship will prosper. It's a great mystery because it isn't solvable like all mysteries. I think when I talk about agreement, people say, Well, what does that really mean? So I want to give you just a the most recent memorable uh, agreement for David and me, and we don't always do it as as faithfully and steadfastly as we've been taught to do it, that we did a remodel on the new house that we bought, the old house that we bought a few years ago. And the remodel was all finished. We had moved in, but we had no kitchen. And the kitchen was, they were delivering the kitchen. And David started putting up the plastic, the Biscayne, to cover the rest of the house where we had been living so there would be no dust. And as he did that, he included the powder room, which is in the center of the house. And I said, no, no, just put it there at the edge of the kitchen. And he said, well, the men have to use the bathroom. And I said, Those men are not pooping in my bathroom. You see, it wasn't a a project anymore. It was my house. I live there. And he looked at me and he said, honey, they have to go to the bathroom. Where will they go? I said, I don't care where they go. They're not pooping in my bathroom. And that went back and forth for a hard seven or eight minutes. And I was adamant. And guess what? He was adamant. So we said what we do. And that is, okay. you go to your corner, so to speak, and I'll go to my corner Let's talk about this again whenever we think we're ready. And in that time, I know that David does what I do. And that is, I ask the Lord, am I wrong? Should I change? Is this is there is there another way to solve this? What, what can I do? And he does the same thing. Well, two days later, he came to our little meeting place in the morning, and he said, I have a solution. And I was so glad because I had nothing but they can't poop in my bathroom. That's still all I had. And he said, We'll just rent another porta potty. And I agreed. He agreed. I agreed. We resolved it. There were no men in my bathroom. Being in agreement takes time and care, but in the end, both parties um, are understood. Grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Uh, that's a very important phrase to me. And I can never say it without my dear adopted nephew, Jason, who's been at home in heaven now for 12 years. And uh, when Thanksgiving came around, we would always have a pie party. And most of our friends went to their families for Thanksgiving Day, but in the evening, we would have a pie party. 30 or 40 people would come with their kids, and everybody would run around, and everyone would have pie and coffee. You're right, I made a lot of pies. Uh, But Jason always came to me to get his piece of pie because I gave him a bigger piece of pie because he always wanted more. Talk about more, 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 more. Jason had some uh, issues in life, and he didn't always behave in the same way everyone else did, but I was a sucker for him from the get-go. So I gave him a bigger size of pie. But then came the dollop of whipped cream. And he, through the years, got to recognize that he would say, could I have more? Could I have another scoop? Until at some point I realized that if I put that whipped cream on top, on top, on top, on top, it covered the piece of pie. It was just whipped cream. That he went away, never had to say, could I have more? And I was reading John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, and the phrase that we can find there is grace upon grace. I'm going to read these few verses to you. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory as the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me and ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Can you see that piece of pie? Just heaping over with whipped cream, grace upon grace. Your influence through grace is immeasurable. We all respond to graciousness. All of us respond to graciousness. Whether you pause long enough and say, oh, that's a gracious act, or that's a gracious woman, or that feels like it's full of grace, it doesn't matter what you say. What only matters is that you recognize grace upon grace. They are grace concepts because the basis for grace is our marriage. Believing that God instituted marriage, not us that his plan for forgiveness and reconciliation and respect for one another, but especially for wives to husbands. Love come from husbands to wives, acceptance with trust of each other, headship and yielding with intimacy in soul and heart and body, and understanding once for all that marriage is a mystery. This is grace upon grace in a marriage and learning and protecting grace. Pause. I don't know why. Grace upon grace is a phrase that will change your life if you let it. And grace in marriage, of course, allows you to be in a marriage that is together till death do us part. The last of these concepts is kindness. And of course, the first Corinthians passage, which is so often read in a marriage uh, ceremony, that we love one another and that we are kind to one another. And then in Ephesians, uh, where we're reading uh, the list of, what what is the list there? I, I'm going to flip there because I just suddenly lost where, where what that is a list about. But he says, let no evil talk come out of your mind. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not be angry, but be kind to one another. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, there's a lovely list. The epistles are full of lists, aren't they? I like them myself. They sort of help me do a check from time to time. As God has chosen ones, holy and beloved, he says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's that's a hard list if you're a person like myself, because I'm a hard charger. I I have a fast answer. I move quickly. My brain runs ahead of me, and I try to keep up with my brain. That's just how God made me. But that doesn't mean... That God didn't ask me and call me to recognize that these gifts, these attributes of holiness and compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. When my husband and I were first married, he was practicing law. He went every day to work in a long sleeve, most often French cuff shirt that was starched with a lot of starch. And they got to be really expensive at the dry cleaner, and I determined I was going to figure out how to starch a shirt. So I went to a local store, and I found a box of starch, little blue box, and I read the instructions. And just about the time I was reading the instructions, standing in the aisle, a woman came over to me, and she said, do you use this starch? And I said, never, but I want to. Oh, she said, it's the best starch in the world. And she went on and on. And I said, well, I've never done this before and I'm going to starch my husband's shirts. And with that, she went off into a tutorial that lasted, oh, maybe five minutes. But she, she did the most helpful thing. I always wished I could have found her. Because in my mind, I can still think, even though I had to boil the water, make the starch, put the starch into the boiled water, stir it, let it cool, dip the shirt, let it dry, then iron it. Okay, that was the process. I had in my mind I would just put the shirt in the starch and it would come out. And she laughed out loud when I said that. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, because he would not be able to get it on. He would be like, how how much starch does he want in his collar? I said, a lot. And in his cuffs. Why? And on the placard of the front of the shirt, because that gets buttoned and folded and cufflinked and buttoned. And his neck, of course, gets perspiration. That's where the starch goes. And I said, well, how do you do that? And she showed me. She just grabbed like she had a piece of fabric, and she said, take the collar and stuff in here and put the uh, arm cuffs here, take the placket right there and put all that in a little nosegay, dip it in the starch, wring it out, let it dry, and iron it. And I remember being at a dinner party, and for some reason I overheard David saying, one of the kindest things that my wife does for me is that she washes and starches and irons my shirts. Every day I put on a shirt that was ironed by her. And I can remember him saying that thinking, geez, I didn't even notice. But what he didn't know was that someone else had said to me when she was ironing clothes for her family, this is a long time ago, girls, ironing clothes for her family that she prayed for them. And I did. I would pray for David's neck. And the head that held his neck. And I would pray for his cuffs and the arms and his hands and how he greeted people and how he did his work. And as he buttoned up his shirt, it was close to his heart. And so every time I would iron a shirt, I would pray for David. And there he was saying this kind thing about what he thought was a kindness. I don't even think I thought that was a kindness. I think I started it because we were trying to save money And I do love to iron, and there you put them all together. So when you are thinking about kindness in marriage, let your mind go wide. What may be a kindness to you is not a kindness to your husband, and what may not matter to you at all is a kindness to him. And this bit of kindness, which God calls us to have for one another, will yield fruit in the marriage that God has called you to. Believing that God instituted marriage, not us, that this is his plan for forgiveness and reconciliation and acceptance and intimacy and understanding one another, that it's all a big mystery, and that you heap on it grace upon grace like a whipped cream on Jason's pumpkin pie. I pray that these nine concepts of marriage will help each of you, whatever stage in marriage you are, be a staying marriage partner. Staying till death do you part. Remember, the common begin and the uncommon finish. Go out and make it a very uncommon day in your marriage.
0: Thank you, Donna. Uh, Staying together till death do us part. I take that personally. Thank you. Now, ladies, uh, you're familiar with the website. Maybe you get the podcast from the website. But we put some Advent candles up on the website. And take a look. This is a special product which we import from England that has a special Christ-like image upon it. And it allows you to work with your family, your kids, and count down till the birth of Christ. There's a guide that comes with it to help you... Uh, interact with your kids so thank you for listening and modern homemakers says you are kind